So welcome. Um, for those of you who don't know, my name is Micah Rose, and uh, normally I'm up here with a guitar, so uh, on occasion I've gotten to come up here and be behind this thing instead, so um, I feel like I need a, a stool, like, um, <laughs> so, no, I'm good. <laughs> Thanks, Osa. All right, um, so tonight we are going to get into the, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the book of Jude, the epistle of Jude, the letter of Jude, um, and talking about contending for the faith. So um, I may be sipping a lot of water tonight. Uh, my voice is a little, little scratchy, came down with a little thing a couple days ago, uh, and then spent the entire day today uh, in negotiator training. And as a team leader for that, I ended up doing a lot of talking. So my voice is a little tired. Uh, so I may be sipping a lot of water, but uh, thankfully, it's not about me or my voice, but it's about the word and the text, um, and so uh, we're going to let God speak to us tonight. So uh, so the book of Jude, a um, little bit of background on it, so really referred to as a general epistle, meaning that it's general to the church. Uh, it was not written to a specific church like a lot of the letters in the New Testament are, um, and although it was likely written to and towards Jewish Christians uh, of those days, it was just a general to the church and to believers. Uh, Jude's aim in writing the letter was to protect uh, Christian truth and to strongly oppose false teachers that threaten the faith. Uh, it's a letter that was absolutely relevant in Jude's day, and it's very relevant today as well, and it encourages all believers, you, me, all of us, not just the people that are up preaching, but the ones um, uh, listening and, and all believers uh, to passionately defend the truth. Uh, so we are going to look at the whole 25-verse uh, letter tonight. Um, we're not going to necessarily exposit or go in deep on every uh, little piece of it and every, every verse, but we're going to take a, a bit of a broader look at the message that he gives and discuss how we can apply it to our lives today. So we're going to get started by reading the letter together. So uh, if you are able to stand, um, I will be wearing my glasses, unlike... Unlike Ben, he hasn't quite given into it yet, but um, <laughs> I discovered that, uh, and according to my eye doctor, I made it to 48. That's actually pretty good. Um, most men have to get them a lot sooner, so, but I probably should have had them sooner, so that's okay. So we're going to read the whole letter, um, and I'm going to be reading out of the New King James, um, so let's read this together. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered all for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into lewdness and did not deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day." As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to the sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of, of eternal fire. Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. 
Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved... Remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. So Father, we thank you for your word, and I just pray that tonight uh, your word would, would do what it does, Lord, um, that it would convict, it would encourage, it would uh, press us all on, um, and that we, we, we would walk out of here um, just with greater purpose and, and greater knowledge of, of who you are and, and how we are to uh, speak of you and, and defend you in this, in this dark world. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, have a seat. So as I mentioned uh, at first, you know, the, the epistle of Jude was written to uh, Jewish Christians. I'm going to go over just a couple, um, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but just um, information about a few things as far as the, the writing of it, the history of it, uh, and then we're going to get into the text a little bit more. So first of all, uh, as far as the writing of it goes, um, there's a there's a lot of, there's some different opinions out there, and there's some things I'm going to talk about with relation to it that um, cover some of that, and one of those things has to do with the writing. Um, it's generally believed to be written sometime between 65 AD and as far as 90 AD. Uh, I take the stance and that it really is more the 66 to 70, and I think there's a couple really good reasons for that and arguments for that. Because it was written to Jewish Christians, and it was mostly about judgment on apostates, and it, re it references a, a number of different events from Jewish history, uh, it was also believed to have been written from Jerusalem, 
Uh, I think it's very highly unlikely that if it had been written after 70 AD that Jude would not have mentioned the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Um, Just given the context of what he's writing about, um, it just would make absolutely no sense for him to write this after that happened, happening and not mentioning that judgment. Um, the other thing with it uh, is a connection to its similarity to Second Peter chapter 2. Uh, we know that that was written in 66 AD because Peter specifically talks about his, um, his being martyred and his death in that, and he, he was put to death in 66 AD. And so... Uh, an aspect of that as well, then, that comes into play um, is in the, the Greek terminology com- compared to Second Peter. In Second Peter, he talks about a, a will, a future event that these apostates, uh, false teachers, will be coming, whereas the terminology that Jude uses uh, is more in the present and saying that it has come. It has come and will continue. It already is. Um, and then later in Jude, there's another reference in verse 17 um, where he, he talks, you know, but you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. Um, so the only other couple places in Scripture that actually talk about that specific thing are um, by Paul in First and Second Timothy and then by Peter in Second Peter. And so Jude's use of that apostles, plural, and that they were talking about, um, it, there have to be two places for that to make sense, and so there are those only two of they would be Peter and, um, and Paul. So I think it's fully, most reasonably to be written, believed to be written in that time, and I think there's good evidence for that. So a couple other things just to kind of talk about real quick because they come up in this, in this book, uh, is the two references, well, there's actually a couple different references um, to, to Enoch, but uh, the, also the reference to the, um, the assumption of Moses. So this is the, the spot where uh, Jude talks about um, the archangel Michael contending with the devil over the body of Moses, and then the prophecy of Enoch that he mentions. So the reason I put uh, Jude's use of non-canonical pseudepigraphical sources in the air quotes uh, is because I, I think that in, when we are attributing um, these portions of Jude uh, to, they, they often get attributed to these actual written works that we now call the Book of Enoch and the Assumption of Moses. But in order to associate or to I- I- to precisely say that Jude was referencing those, I think we have to make a lot of assumptions about what Jude was, was saying because Jude does not say anything about what was written in that or what was written by in the Assumption of Moses or by Enoch. He simply references a prophecy that Enoch made and he references this event of, of Moses contending with, with the devil, or excuse me, uh, the archangel Michael contending with the, the devil over the body of Moses. So uh, the timing and authorship of Enoch, um, we know that it's a collection of many pieces, and the actual writing um, most reasonably looks like it came from between 300 and 200 BC. So that was obviously a long time after uh, Enoch actually lived, um, and there actually really is no uh, factual uh, evidence that strongly supports that Enoch was even actually the writer of the book of Enoch. 
Uh, there, he obviously said a lot of the things, and there was the, that record of things that he that he did. Uh, but as far as as being able to confidently, factually uh, put that as as being what Jude is referencing here, being the book of Enoch, uh, you just have to make some assumptions in order to be able to do that. Um, it's my position that I think Enoch, or Jude simply was quoting something that it was known, a prophecy that, that under the uh, inspiration of the Spirit, a prophecy that Enoch made. And so uh, it's the same with his references to fallen angels uh, in verse 6 and the wandering stars in verse 13, uh, which many scholars also believe he pulled from the book of Enoch. But again, he never says anything about those things being written somewhere. He just references these events. And I, I don't think that it's um, uh, that we should be uh, attributing something to Jude that is not written in the text. Um, he simply recalls these events, and so he, they're, they're put in there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I, I think we can just leave it at that, and I think we should. Uh, the assumption of Moses is the same thing. Uh, it actually only exists in one manuscript that was dated originally from 500 AD, uh, and it's missing a very large portion of the actual text. Uh, the work itself, uh, the written work itself is dated to the first century, um, but again, much of it was known and referenced by many Christians, so it's not to say that there wasn't this work and there aren't truths and things inside it, um, but to say that that specifically is what Jude was referencing, um, I think is, is, is a, a wrong uh, approach to that, but instead... Similarly to the way Paul um, in Acts 17, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Timothy 3, Titus 1, um, he makes references to a number of Greek and pagan poets and other writings, um, and we don't automatically take those things and say that just because he referenced them, it referenced them and used them that it somehow makes those things canon. Uh, it simply just means that their use was inspired by the Holy Spirit to teach us things. And so... I think we should take that same approach with references to the book of Enoch and the assumption of Moses and not get caught up in uh, too much speculation over those things because that speculation isn't going to lead to anything good. We should see what the text says and, and learn from it and, and leave it at that. That's my position on that. So um, as far as the structure of Jude, it's broken up into a number of sections. We have this greeting and introduction, the first couple verses, uh, then the purpose and concern. Um, I like how, uh, I, think it was, I think it's John MacArthur in uh, verse 3 and 4 calls this section the declaration of war against apostates. Um, so I kind of like the way he says that. Uh, and then we have the overall concern, talking about the apostates, uh, talking about the, uh, what, what they are, uh, what they're doing, kind of the problems with that, and that's that, a, a larger section in the middle. And then we have uh, a couple verses of him exhorting believers to faithfulness, and then the end of this doxology. Um, one of the, the, the best doxologies in Scripture, in my opinion. I love the, the last couple of verses of this. So, starting off with the introduction, um, we're going to look at um, a couple things with this. So, first of all, I love how he starts off just by identifying himself as a bondservant of Jesus, bondservant of Christ. Uh, rather than identifying himself as a brother of Jesus. So he says, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So James is referenced um, in a number of places as a pillar among the apostles. 
um, in Acts 15, one place, uh, Galatians 2.9. It's also mentioned in Mark 3.6.3, uh, 3, Matthew 13.55. And in Matthew and Mark is where it also references Jude. However, in those passages, he's referenced as Judas. So Jude was another, another way of saying Judas. And in order to kind of differentiate between the Judas that we all think of when we think of the Gospels in Judas, um, he goes by Jude here instead of, instead of Jesus, Judas to make that differentiation. Um, and again, he's writing to the church in general. He says, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Um, and again, we even though he's just to the church in general, um, confident that he's really writing to Jewish believers, especially because of his use of the Old Testament scriptures, Old Testament tradition, um, some of the, the events that, that happened with Sodom and Gomorrah and the things that, that, um, that he references. Uh, and starting in verse 5, how he says, I want to remind you, though you once knew this, um, the Lord having saved the people out of Egypt, and he kind of goes on, and so he's given this, them, this, them this reminder. Uh, and so we can confidently say that you know, he's talking to, to Jewish believers. Um, he then goes on to state that he intended to write about their common salvation. Uh, and then he felt it necessary instead to exhort them. So um, with this common salvation, he's kind of talking about, you know, there's that foundation of, of what he's talking about. And that kind of sets the stage then for him to move on to talking about uh, contending. So um, he says, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. So before we talk about what the faith is and kind of go on and move on from that, uh, we want to talk about what does it mean to contend. So the Greek word that he uses here, I'm not going to try to pronounce it, but it's a strengthened form of a word that comes from an, an athletic term that is connected to wrestling. It means to agonize or to struggle. Um, this verb is used in the, the present infinitive sense, and what that means is that it is this contending is a continuous thing. It's now, and it's ongoing. So... One thing to think about with contending, um, you know, a lot of times I think we can quickly jump to the idea of kind of like beating someone down, you know, and I think a lot of times when we think about contending for the faith, um, there's this picture of, of aggression and, um, and it's not always a good thing. It's not always painted or, or thought of as a good thing. Um, but you know, you, you can't have contending without some level of that, so we need to look at, you know, what the, really that means. Um, <clears throat> if you think about the concept of most wrestling, uh, especially uh, things like Brazilian jiu-jitsu or other similar forms of martial arts, has anyone here done any BJJ or any of that kind of stuff? Uh, a couple? So, um, one of the things that, that we understand from that and know is that the idea of that, of that is not to um, necessarily beat someone down, but it, rather it's to bring someone into submission. So when you win in that, you get someone to tap out, right? So uh, getting someone to tap out is, is, is a using skills. There are rules to follow. There's techniques and things that you train in in order to then get someone to tap out, bring them into submission. So when we think about contending, 
Um, it's, it's not just about a, a beatdown, <laughs> but rather it's about using those, those skills, using that training, using those things we know to, to bring someone into submission to the truth of God and the truth of the face, faith. And you know, we do that with compassion. We do that passionately. Um, and I, I think that oftentimes we can shy away from that because we see people do it wrong, right? We see like the Westboro Baptist um, people out yelling and screaming at people. We see people that kind of do contending wrong, right? And so we oftentimes can then shy away from it because of that. Um, but just because we see others do it wrong, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it right. Um, others doing something wrong does not give us an excuse or give it, make an excuse um, for us to not do something the right way. We are called to contend. And when we remember, just as Paul wrote uh, in Ephesians 6, uh, 12, it says, you know, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So remember that we're not wrestling against these, these people. We're not wrestling against this person, but rather we're contending for this faith and we are doing it passionately knowing that, that yanking them out of the, the, the path that they're on um, is, is a loving and good thing, okay? So that's really kind of that picture of what contending is. It's this agonizing over, it's this wrestling over. And sometimes it's not even about with another person. Sometimes we're, we're having that, that, that agonizing or that wrestling with ourselves. We're contending with ourselves because of some issue. So contending for the faith, right? So what is the faith? So Again, he says that he intended to write something, uh, write something else uh, about the common salvation, but then found that it was that he found it necessary to write about contending for it. So obviously, this common salvation was important because he wasn't—he's not going to mention it if it's not important. Um, the faith is used in this sense in a bunch of places in the Old Testament. Um, there's examples, and they're up there. I don't know if you can see those very well. Might be a little smaller than I intended. Um, Acts 6, 7, Acts 13, 8, 14, 22, 16, 5, 24, 4, uh, Romans 1, 5, and 16, 26, Colossians 2, 7, 1 Timothy 1, 2, uh, and others. There's a lot of places where this faith is referenced. And so um, I, I think what, I, what I'd like to do is read a section um, talking about this from a commentary. Let me pull this up. Um, that I just, I really liked the way um, that this commentary um, addresses this. So, by the faith is meant the doctrine of faith, in which sense it is used whenever faith is said to be preached, obeyed, departed, or erred from, or denied, or made shipwreck of, or when exhortations are made to stand fast and continue in it, or to strive and contend for it as here and which is sometimes called the word of faith, the faith of the gospel, the mystery of faith, or most holy faith, the common faith, and as here, faith only. It designs the whole scheme of evangelical truths to be believed, such as the doctrine of the Trinity, the deity and sonship of Christ, the divinity and personality of the Spirit, what regards the state and condition of man by nature as the doctrines of the imputation of Adam's sin to his posterity, the corruption of the nature and the impotence of man to that which is good, the concern 
uh, what concerns the acts of grace and in the Father, Son, and Spirit towards and upon the sons of men, as the doctrines of everlasting love, eternal election, the covenant of grace, particular redemption, justification by the imputed righteousness of Christ, pardon and reconciliation by his blood, regeneration and sanctification by the grace of the Spirit, final preservation, perseverance, and the resurrection of the dead, and the future glory of the saints with Christ. So, obviously, there's a lot of essential doctrines that are key to the faith. Um, and so when we think about that, you know, I think a lot of times, especially in our Christian world, and we'll talk about some of this in a minute, but um, there's a lot of things that get really watered down, right? Um, but obviously with the way we, we look at what the faith is and scripturally um, within the full context of scripture, what that talks about, um, it's not watered down. It's, there's a lot there, and, and we, we need to know it. If we're going to contend for it, we need to know what that is. So, let's look then, he talks about needing to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints, and he says, for certain men have crept in unnoticed. So, let's talk about this a little bit. Um, We'll get to the certain men part in a minute and kind of go over some of that, but first we want to kind of look at this, uh, this idea of crept and unnoticed. So Jude's making an important distinction here about what we are to be watchful of. Um, these certain men didn't come into the church with bullhorns, uh, yelling and screaming and making their false teaching obvious. Uh, they were sneaky. They went in unnoticed, so they weren't even noticed. So if we think about most false teaching, not all, but a lot of false teaching in the church and how it gets in, uh, it really does creep in subtly. Uh, it creeps in with things that sound good on the surface. Uh, they often have an element of truth. Uh, most of the false teaching um, that, that come in, like there's some element of truth. Um, I've spent a decent amount of time uh, listening to a lot of uh, progressive Christian, um, New Apostolic Reformation, Word of Faith, other types of things. Um, just because I w- I've wanted to educate myself on, on what they're teaching and what those things are like. And, and it often really does sound so virtuous, uh, so spiritual and Christ-like. Um, and, and, you know, we think about progressive Christianity specifically, and we can, can look at it, it just an element of that and how um, it's so much about God's grace and it really has twisted God's grace and, and loving your neighbor, uh, the whole idea of, of judge not lest ye be judged, uh, loving your neighbor, those are true things, but they get twisted so much to where uh, they really have turned God's grace into lewdness uh, and essentially blessing all sorts of wickedness uh, in that name of loving your neighbor and showing grace and, and being accepting. And we see that a lot and all over the place. So he talks about these coming in, these certain men unnoticed, and they're being, them being marked out for condemnation. Um, and then he goes in to say that I want to remind you. So he said, okay, now that I've kind of talked about what the concern is, um, I want to give you a little reminder first. Um, he takes care to remind the church that judgment is real. Uh, God's people that were saved out of Egypt, uh, 
many of them perished because they would not believe. Uh, he talks about the celestial angels, that they don't get a pass. They didn't stay where they were supposed to be, and they were judged. Uh, he talks about then Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities that are next, there, next uh, around them that were, were doing the same things. Um, they refused to, uh, to repent of their immoral, uh, immoral acts and immoral ways, and they suffered the judgment. And so he's essentially saying in this reminder, um, hey, these guys didn't get a pass, so don't you dare think that you're going to get a pass as well if you fail to contend for the faith. So then these certain men... Um, he starts by saying likewise also these dreamers. So he goes through this section talking about the old apostates and how uh, the, um, the, just as we said, the, the ones he saved out of Egypt that didn't believe, uh, the angels, Sodom, Gomorrah, them, they suffered this, this, uh, this vengeance. And, and so then he goes on to say likewise, just like them, um, these dreamers, he says, who defile the flesh, the flesh reject authority and speak evil of dignitaries. So there are a few possibilities um, for what Jude was talking about here with dreamers. And um, there's a, a few different ideas that different scholars have on that. And I'm not going to go through them all, uh, but it really seems most reasonable to me based on the context of the full passage that he is likely speaking in, in this idea of dreamers um, to these, these people that were um, claiming all sorts of extra spiritual, extra, um, extra spiritual awareness, um, possibly pro- prophetic dreamers, um, those who rely on their feelings and spiritual experiences uh, to guide them rather than the, the truth of Scripture. Um, and I, I think the, the, the reason that that is most reasonable is because he, he links this to speaking, of, um, speaking evil of dignitaries, and he, he goes on to talk about this, um, this issue between Michael and Satan and not bringing a blasphemous accusation against the devil. Um, and so it's, that whole section is talking about these spiritual things. And so I don't think it would it would make sense for Jude to be talking about dreamers in some of the different senses that some people say it, say it might be, um, and then just jump into this spiritual awareness thing. Um, they just, they don't really, those things don't match up. And so when we let, when we let the context speak and we look at the full context, uh, I think that's the most reasonable explanation. So part of that too is the word that he uses here for dignitaries um, is most often translated uh, glory, and um, I actually really prefer the ESV, um, and I'm going to read that to you. Oh, I just lost it, sorry. Um, the ESV translation of, of this, where um, instead of where he says in the, in the New King James, likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries, um, the ESV translates this, yet in like manner these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Uh, and you know, when you look at a lot of like deliverance ministries, for example, and some of these like really hyper-spiritual, um, um, hyper-spiritual ministries, 
Um, you see that a lot, um, these, this reliance on feelings and experiences, this relying, reliance on this over-spiritualization of a lot of things. Um, and it, it seems consistent with what, what Jude is speaking about here as well. Um, and so the context of this, I think, really just seems to uh, be talking about these spiritual matters, suggesting that these, these dreamers um, essentially are just really rejecting God's sovereignty. Um, they're taking authority upon themselves and doing all these things to, uh, and really just rejecting the sovereignty of God. Um, so, and then he uh, connects it also to, um, to the way of Cain, the heir of Balaam, and the rebellion of Korah. Um, Cain we read about in Genesis 4. Um, there was this hatred that he had for Abel because um, Abel's sacrifice was made with faith and, and, and Cain was, hated him for that and was jealous of that and murdered him. Uh, Balaam, he was willing to uh, accommodate all these pagan beliefs out of greed uh, and this kind of mixing of religions and things. And uh, then Korah and, um, and, and his gang and group that basically kind of uh, stood up against Moses and usurped the authority uh, that God had put in place. And so um, he, he speaks, um, Jude speaks here of those, of those judgments of those who perished in that. So then he goes into this section um, where he gives these, um, these comparisons, a number of comparisons to what these apostates um, are like. It says, spots in your love feasts, he calls them uh, clouds without water, late autumn trees, raging waves, wandering stars. So the spots in your love feasts, um, excuse me. Um, some commentators um, have looked at this and said that they kind of think it means more of um, like spots, stains on a garment. Um, but I, given the context, again, I think context is really important when we, when we look at these things because he writes, these spots in your love feasts while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. Um, there's a, there's a, a, a connotation of this um, selfishness and danger that they bring, right? Um, and I don't, I don't know what a spot on your clothes would really, how that would really fit in there. Um, but the, the, the word that is used in there often is instead um, refers to hidden reefs, these spots being hidden reefs. And it talked about um, how like if a ship was coming in and these hidden reefs that would, would just sit there and dwell and how easily they could shipwreck something. And so he compares these apostates um, and I think it, again, it kind of fits with the context of this selfishness and destructiveness that, that they would bring to the, to the body. He compares them to these hidden reefs lying in wait that could just so easily take down a ship, not caring about what they, um, what they damage. And so I think that's really kind of, I think that's the best, the best context for that. Um, he then talks about the clouds without water um, carried about by the winds. Um, you know, rain uh, would have been a very welcome thing in the desert, in the, in the Middle East at that point. Um, you know, and, and when clouds provide needed rain, um, we like them, right? Uh, we think about, you know, the end of a really dry summer and a drought, you know, see clouds coming in and like, yes, rain, and just like, but what happens when the rain doesn't come, right? You're pretty disappointed and pretty disillusioned by that. And so, you know, this... Um, this imagery of clouds without water, building up this hope 
of rain to come, this hope of nourishment that um, this, this delivered, this promise to deliver this rain, um, and it never comes. And instead, you just get gloom and sadness from dark clouds, right? So um, the doctrines of these false teachers, um, and we see, we see it all over, you know, watch some TBN or some, something else um, with these promising these, these wonderful blessings and all these things, um, they promise all this stuff, but they, they don't deliver. They just bring, bring gloom and get kind of blown around by whatever the flavor of the month is. Um, and he talks about these late autumn trees. Um, you know, late autumn trees are beautiful to, to look at, They're to, to, to watch. There's, you know, all the beautiful colors. Uh, but when, when it comes to fruit and the usefulness of that, uh, there really isn't any. Um, his statement here, though, seems to refer more to um, the withering of autumn, um, trees that then kind of cast off their outer appearance and reveal themselves then for um, just that they're just dead and bare and there's no fruit there. Um, and that's, you know, he uses this term, um, you know, they, they come in with this appearance of fruit, but then says they're, they're twice dead. Uh, it's kind of entirely or thoroughly dead. Um, and then raging waves, um, you know, waves in the sea, they're driven by the current, um, they battle against each other, and that's kind of what causes the, the foaming um, that comes up in the ocean as a result of agitation, right? And so he's, he brings this picture again of just, you know, this, this competition, this agitation. And when you think about a lot of the um, kind of these mega churches, so to speak, you know, what's more important, you know, who has the most, who has the biggest church, who has the most powerful ministry, and all these kind of things that come into that. Um, it's pretty disgusting. Um, and then the wandering stars. Um, here he uses a, a Greek word, planetes, um, which is a rover planet, and um, from best I could understand, is kind of curious, like, reading up on this some, but um, in, in that time, it appears just with their understanding of celestial things that there is some, some kind of understanding that there were some, um, some of these, these wandering stars that weren't fixed in place like, like, um, like other things were. And so, um, but really, um, everything that is, I mean, obviously, you know, even with satellites and those kinds of things, they are fixed in place. They do have an orbit, um, and they do have a path um, but what he's saying here is that these wandering stars, these ones, they have a path, and their path is to outer darkness. Um, so although they seem, um, they seem to not have, have that direction, they do have a direction, and they're headed for outer, outer darkness. And then he goes on and calls them grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth flattering words, uh, or great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. Um, I love how uh, Chuck Smith simply sums up this entire section simply by saying, so these are the typical politicians. Um, I think there is more to that, though, <laughs> since I don't, you know, when I think of the term false, false teacher, I don't, think of the, I don't think of politicians, although I'm sure they kind of fit into that to some extent. But, um, but you know, rather, I think more of you know, so many mega pastors like, you know, Joel Osteen, um, Stephen Furtick from Elevation Church, um, numerous pastors from places like Hillsong um, and other just celebrity pastors around the world. Uh, you know, they, they sound so great and they speak so convincingly and they have these swelling words and flattery. Uh, but really it, all it is is just they're good motivational speakers. 
Um, there's no depth. Um, and then even worse than that, you know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of heresy. There's a lot of flat-out, false, unbiblical, dangerous teaching that comes from a lot of these places. Uh, another place um, is the, the destructive, uh, dangerous doctrines, doctrines um, from places like uh, Bethel Church in Redding, California, not the one here in Chehalis, um, but the one in, in Bethel, or in, excuse me, California, uh, with Bill Johnson and, uh, you know, self-appointed uh, apostle and self-appointed prophets and all of this there. Um, and they have a huge, huge, huge following in our world, um, and it's, it's concerning. And so, you know, <clears throat> one thing as well, looking back to um, verse 4, where we talked about that crept in unnoticed, um, in that, the, another way that, that has been translated or can be is to, to settle in alongside, uh, to lodge or slip in stealthily, to enter secretly. Um, and when you think about this, you know, there's so many of these false teachers and just false teaching in general uh, that really has wormed its way into the church. And, <clears throat> excuse me, I know for, you know, a lot of times there can be very... Um, some of, this, some of this is individual conviction as well, right? So I don't, I don't think we can always, you know, there's some areas that are more gray. Um, there's a lot of things that are very black and white with that. Um, some of them there are more gray. Um, but I know, you know, for, for me and when, when we kind of try to apply uh, teaching for ourselves, I know one area for me personally that I've looked at a lot as, is in worship music, just because as a worship leader, um, I... I, I have a, a passion for making sure that, uh, that our worship is, is God-honoring. Um, and so I, when I think about worming, things worming their way in, um, one of the easy ex- examples of me for that is, um, is just the worship music that is, that is played throughout our, our culture and even in our churches. Um, you know, you just take any listen um, to any, any popular Christian radio station and you can't go one or two songs without hearing a song from Bethel Church in Reading uh, or uh, Elevation Worship, which is uh, Stephen Furtick's church, um, Hillsong, and, and some of these other, uh, some of these other um, very dangerous churches because there's a lot of very dangerous teaching in that. Um, and unfortunately, there's, there's even a lot of, um, of songwriters and musicians that, um, that we all um, have heard for years that are are partnering with these with these churches, um, and again, you know, personal conviction. I know that this statement probably may rub some of you the wrong way, uh, but even artists like Chris Tomlin, uh, Matt Redman, Phil Wickham, um, they they partner with these churches. Um, and if you want to talk more about that, I'm more than happy to do that. Um, but uh, Matt Redman's latest album is with one of uh, Bethel. Bethel Music's um, top uh, artists, uh, Chris Tomlin, has led worship for Joyce Meyer. Her conference um, has recently done a, a live album or a live song with uh, Brian and Jen Johnson, who are the lead pastors at uh, Bethel, and um, and both have partnered uh, a number of times. Or, or Phil Wickham has partnered a number of times with Elevation and those things. So. Um, I just I think we need to be discerning about the things that we are are allowing and and 
You know, that little bit of compromise, like where does that go and where does that lead us? So just something to think about. You know, it's, a, it's a personal conviction for me, and I don't going to, you know, judge or, or uh, say that you have to, to feel the same way, but it is something that, that, that we should think about. And when we're called to contend and agonize over and struggle over, like those things, that, those are things that we need to look at. So when you see a friend consuming heresy, <coughs> I just thought I'd throw a fun meme in there. Uh, if you can't see some of the pictures, we've got, uh, let's see, we've got the Jesus Calling books by Sarah Young. Um, Looks like Benny Hinn, Stephen Furtick, Rob Bell, uh, The Shack. Who else? I don't see who else. Oh, Joel Osteen's up in there too. Um, so there's a few in there. So um, <laughs> again, kind of like I said earlier too, and maybe it's, not a, maybe it's not a friend that we're needing to contend with. Maybe it's, maybe it's us. Maybe there's something in our own lives that we're having to kind of wrestle over and agonize with. Um, but, you know, when we are needing to con- contend for things and address things in our life, um, or other, the lives of others, you know, Jude does give us kind of a recipe, so to speak, for what we are to do. So he starts this section saying, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, right? So there has to be a foundation, and we have to lay the foundation well. Um, a sound faith with a sincere heart um, that is built on the solid truth of the gospel. And we have to build upon that. And we can't just do that on our own. We have to pray in the Holy Spirit. We have to rely on the Holy Spirit for that because we can't build anything um, in and of ourselves. Um, just like the, 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 um, where Jesus teaches of the, the house on the, the rock versus the house on the sand, right? If it's not a solid foundation, it's going to fall down. Um, Praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. So we must remain in God's love. We must remain connected to that vine. Uh, John 15, 5, Jesus tells us, I am the vine and you are the branches. And whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So we we keep ourselves um, in his love. We look for mercy. Uh, We look forward to the hope to come. We keep our eyes fixed on that prize of what is ahead. And just as Paul wrote, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on and finishes this section by saying, and on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. And, and again, I, I like the way the ESV um, translate this first part as having mercy on those who doubt. So we must contend with grace and we must contend with compassion. Um, again, when we recognize, like we said before, that we're not, our battle is not against flesh and blood, right? Um, so we're not, we're not contending against people. Yes, we are contending again. We're all sinners, and there's, you know, there's that aspect of it, but there is a spiritual battle. battle and and we re- when we remember that, um, it's important because we, we contend with grace and compassion. Um, and, and again, while we contend, as he talks about this, this idea of um, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh, um, that while we contend, we also have to be careful not to allow ourselves to be defiled by the garment or by the sin, um, by, by what we're pulling, pulling out. Um, Paul, in his letter to the Thessalonians, um, uh, I didn't put this here, but I think it's 2 Thessalonians, um, 
where he's, there's a section where he's talking about idleness and kind of staying away from those who, are, who remain idle. Um, at the end of that section, he says, um, don't think of them as enemies, but warn them as brothers or sisters. So that same concept of, you know, we're, when we are contending, we want to be ensuring that we're, with grace and compassion, um, treating others um, a, as that. So... I think it's safe to say that we all see kind of the downward spiral that our world is in. I don't, I don't think that is, a, is a too, far, uh, too much of a stretch uh, to say that. And so, and unfortunately, I think in a lot of, a lot of ways, in a lot of places, we also see that, our, that churches in, are, are in a bit of a downward spiral. And so um, the church spinning right along with the world we are called to contend for the faith. We are called to contend and fight for this because it is so important and there are so many that are on a path to the wrong place and we have, what, we have the answer to that. We have that salvation in us. Um, and we are called to contend with mercy and we are called to contend uh, with compassion. And so you know, the question that kind of leave with is you know, where, where are you needing con- to contend? What area in your life, in your friendships, in your, your wherever it may be, um, where are you needed con- to contend? Um, and, and to do so with boldness and compassion. And so we're going to leave with, um, finish this with just reading this last two verses um, of this. And so if you would stand with me again, and we're just going to finish with this doxology. And again, I, I love this. Um, and, and I think it's a great thing to go out, out on tonight. So, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Thank you.